Um, I wasn't expecting to come online to back to your program so soon though, but you know, circumstances. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, by the way, I might have to air our, uh, our, our takes that we, we, we cut out, remember, because we ended and then we talked for like 12 minutes about our views on the market and those turned out to be uh, quite prophetic. Yeah. Oh, I, I didn't realize that uh, those were not included in the, in the final program. Yeah, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to release that as an outtake. Um, so let's get started straight away. This one I might uh, air quickly since it is such a timely subject. Mm -hmm. So this is the Brandon Adams podcast, episode 10 or 11, depending on how quickly I get it out. I did one yesterday with Barton Wang. Uh, he has, w when we spoke last, which was around six weeks ago, it was purely financial markets. In fact, I got the criticism that we went a little bit deep in the weeds, which was inevitable given what was going on at the time. And I've been following you on Twitter for a long time. I noted in our first episode that you've been absolutely amazing at calling tactical market moves on the basis of very detailed analysis of liquidity conditions in the market. Um, then six, eight weeks ago, your, your Twitter complexion changed where you, you started um, tweeting almost exclusively about the coronavirus. Uh, a lot of the audience I think is gonna be familiar with your work because I've been promoting it. Uh, a lot of this audience is gonna be familiar with your work, but explain the personal circumstances that led you to focus on coronavirus. Yeah, first, uh, Brendan, thank you for having me back on the program so quickly. Uh, as you were saying earlier that I kind of switched my Twitter feed topic completely from uh, Fed liquidity content to the coronavirus back in, I think, early mid-January. And it's actually pretty close to the time when we taped the, the, the previous podcast. Uh, at that time, I was experiencing a pretty much a personal crisis because I have very close family members who live 230 miles away from Wuhan, basically in the neighboring province. And, uh, you know, people in their 70s, a pretty high risk group for having uh, bad outcomes from that disease. Uh, and also at the same time, so my family has a little bit of a, a genetic condition that uh, changed their immunology a little bit different from other people. Uh, so we have a, some kind of a very mild so-called mast cell activation syndrome. Some people may be familiar with it. Basically what it is is like your uh, body can release cytokine, which is a messenger molecule similar to what the coronavirus can trigger your body to release. But coronavirus is really in your lungs, but this is like, things can just get triggered by, for example, playing tennis for over two hours. Like that's something would do it for me. Uh, and it causes a wide range of symptoms for relatively mild. It's not as big as a coronavirus. It's mostly like a brain fog that cannot be solved with coffee, for example, or fatigue, uh, malaise, those kind of symptoms. And so I've been studying a lot of remedies or you know, nutritional methods to deal with this problem. And co when the coronavirus uh, outbreak started to happen in China, that immediately just triggered me 
very quickly because I know my several of my family members are kind of high risk to the coronavirus and none of them actually listened to me initially. Uh, this was a conversation we had back around our new year conversation. Um, when the first reports in Wuhan started to surface online saying there's some kind of SARS-like uh, virus going on in Wuhan, caught up everybody, you know, close family members in, in China, uh, not only the, the, the city I just mentioned, but also fa the families in, in Shanghai, nobody cared. And so I sort of stayed quiet for a while, but in mid-January, this is really starting to explode. You start to see you know, doctors being infected, not just the doctor in the ER department, but also doctors in the uh, neurology department, doctors, dermatologists, uh, OBGYN, pretty much like once it spreads, spreads out to the entire, entire hospital. And so I started to become very, very worried about uh, my family members in China uh, because I know they'll be very prone to this, uh, this infection and the outcome will not be very good. Uh, but also at that point, there was really very little we know about the, the treatment plans at the time. So the, the survival rate at the time I estimated for them is about 50% uh, in three months. Um, plus all the travel restrictions I, I foresee it at the time, I realized like if, if they passed away, I wouldn't be able actually to go there and then, you know, say goodbye or it's just going to be a huge, huge mess. So it came to me as a very uh, personal experience. So I pretty much stopped trading in mid-January after our uh, previous podcast uh, taping and then sort of focused my entire attention on to possible solutions of, of uh, therapeutic solutions to the coronavirus. So uh, along the way, uh, you know, I have, uh, I've been working in academia for a long time, published about 70 papers. Uh, I, I, I do academic research really, really well and for a long time. And so reading these uh, latest the clinical papers and connecting dots, looking at the, you know, the virologies, uh, uh, the immune response from different people, how do you deal with it from a nutritional perspective, a pharmaceutical perspective, those are just uh, kind of uh, what I've been doing for a long time. I've been studying uh, genetics and uh, immunology for almost 10 years uh, in this area. So I kind of switched from talking about stocks to talking about uh, about coronavirus because like you have to survive this in order to <laughs> benefit for any profit you make in the market. Like if we can't survive this, it's, it's going to be really, really bad. Uh, also later in February, I have a couple of friends uh, in Beijing who actually work in the uh, fever clinic of uh, the top four uh, hospitals in Beijing. And we had a lot of discussion about the clinical features. I helped them a little bit to analyze some of the data, uh, some of the uh, symptoms and possible reasons for those. So it's, uh, it's been a lot of uh, information coming in and I kind of uh, wanted to help people to figure out a way to not to panic and then just to understand what's coming and then deal with it in a rational way. So I'm going to ask you some simple questions because I do think at this point, there's so much information out there. Uh, most people are still at the level of elementary questions. Um, so uh, we coordinated this 
interview last minute. I wrote you yesterday. My impetus for writing you was twofold. You'd be quite disappointed in me to know that I was considering taking a flight tomorrow. I, I made the decision today not to take that flight. Smart one. Yeah. Um, but I was, I was planning to fly to California tomorrow. I'm not, I, I canceled everything today. I'm not going. Um, so that was, that was impetus one that I was still thinking about it when I, when I, uh, messaged you, but much more importantly, I, uh, chatted with my closest friend who runs the big biotechnology hedge fund and he's chatting with the infectious disease doctors and, uh, the conversation I had with him was quite concerning. Um, it was to, to summarize the part that had me uh, really terrified was that his estimates of the probability of dying, given that you contracted as a healthy individual, were, were much higher than I thought based on the data that I had seen. Yeah. Um, and then the probability of an ICU visit, um, is also very high. So I was, I was shocked by his estimates and it, that's what made, made me change my mind on the trip and change my mind on other things and, and really, uh, search out evidence for why his estimates were so different than mine when a lot of, in a lot of cases we were looking at similar data. Right. Um, so, so I guess I don't want so to get your, that What's your away. estimate to start with? What's your estimate to start with? Like, Cause I guess a lot of people probably have a similar estimate. I guess I don't think of myself as overconfident with regard to health outcomes. Everyone, everyone knows about the overconfidence literature. People systematically think that they're above average drivers, that they, that they, can make their way without directions, uh, that they uh, have better understandings in a wide variety of contexts than they actually do. Um, how, however, with health outcomes, I, I would have thought I was somewhat objective. I think of myself as a healthy person. Right. Um, so I would have guessed that my probability of dying conditional on catching it would have been one in 5,000 to one in 10,000. So very, very low probability of dying. And I would have thought that the probability of an ICU visit would be like one in a thousand and, mm-hmm. or, or, or one in 2000. Um, right. His estimates were far, far different, far higher. Yeah. So that's, I guess, I guess, among the basic questions I want to ask you, I want to, I want to get into that, the probability of, of, of dying, uh, or going to the ICU. Um, then somewhat relatedly, there's probabilities for above 60 year olds. Um, and, and then, um, you've tweeted a good bit about likely number of cases given uh, what what evidence we do have in, in the U.S. And you've also tweeted a good bit about uh, protective measures that one could take. Um, I, I, I don't really understand new viruses. So mm-hmm. um, 
in LA, they just had some new cases and their, their protocol is if they think that you've been within six feet of an infected person, they would like you to quarantine yourself. Right. Now, I, do you have an estimate for, let's just, let's just take an everyday context. Let's just say that you're seated next to someone at a basketball game who has the coronavirus and your immune system is, at, is it healthy at the time? What would you suppose the probability is that you contract the coronavirus? 70, 80%, I would say, if you're sitting next to somebody who have it and is, uh, who had it for a couple of days, that uh, the, vi the virus has already replicated. And then uh, probably pre-symptom, if the guy has a fever, he probably wouldn't go to the basketball game, right? But pre-symptom or subclinical symptom stage, uh, people are still pretty, uh, pretty contagious. So it's a function of viral load and the viral load starts low and is very high at the point where you have symptoms and it just depends where you meet them along their journey from no symptoms to symptoms. Right. And how long have you been uh, sitting next to this person for that basketball, basketball game? Right. So the quite a few anecdotal cases of people contracted coronavirus in my friend circle, like my friend's dad and a couple of other uh, friends' friends, those people pretty much had like two hours of exposure, just transferring trains or flights in Wuhan railroad station, railway station and airport. Got it. Now here's where the questions will get a little bit naive because I, I don't understand the science very well. So um, if if a new flu season comes around and there's a different strain of flu going around, right? Um, let's just say when H1N1 was, was going around, just a strain of, of flu. Right. Um, it's somewhat similar to other flus in previous seasons. And so your body has some level of immunity and therefore the chance that you beat it, given that you're exposed to it is somewhat high is that is that reasonable to say whereas this this one because your body it because it's different and your body hasn't been exposed to it the chance that you beat it is low right nobody has the antibody so it will spread to everybody they, it's very hard to stop it at uh, because uh, like you know if 10 percent of people have immunity then those people will not they will, they will terminate the transmission chain right but if nobody has immunity, then the transmission chain will just continue unimpeded. Uh, and, and it, um, so coronaviruses are, are they classified as a type of flu or are they something totally different? What, it's, what, it's, it's a type it's, of cold. It's, it's a subtype. Okay. Yeah, there are other coronaviruses, not this, uh, they call it SARS coronavirus 2 now. Uh, let's just call it COVID-19 because it's easier to say and uh, it's uh, less confusing co compared to SARS. So COVID-19 is just one subtype of uh, a wide range of different kinds of coronaviruses. And there are other existing coronavirus that has, have infected many people. Uh, that's just cause common cold. It doesn't cause pneumonia for the most part. And they don't cause a lot of uh, death because most people already have the antibody for them. 
Uh, and also those viruses are not as virulent as this COVID-19. So back to your original question, for people of our age group, let's say people in their 40s, I think right now the, the, the fatality rate uh, for an infection is about 0.4% from the data, from the latest data. Um, and mostly that's from China at this point. And uh, so that's uh, one in every 250 person, people, right? Uh, and the chances of going to ICU is twice of that. So it's going to be 0.8% because the outcome of ICU patients right now is really bad. Like only 50% people can survive that. Um, once you get into ICU, you really need very good care. You need to have doctors who know what they're doing. Initially in Wuhan, the survival rate in ICU was extremely low. It's just painful to watch that process. Very few people can survive that, uh, that, uh, that, because uh, um, they, they weren't treating it correctly. So, um, but my view right now is a lot of these are completely preventable. Like people in their 40s and shouldn't, need to die because a lot of these are just because people don't understand or don't recognize uh, the danger of this, uh, this virus. Uh, the kind of symptom sometimes can be, appears to be mild unless you do have blood testing and you know uh, what's going on. For example, the leading cause, uh, I think probably 25 to 30% of uh, death for people below 50 is not actually respiratory failure. It's from myocarditis, that's inflammation of heart muscle and causes heart not being able to beat properly. If the patient is, uh, you know, exerting themselves, for example, uh, running or, you know, make a dash to catch a train. Um, when your heart rate goes above certain level and you have big inflammation in your heart muscles, that could just cause sudden heart attack. And then it's often, Fatal, and that's why you see those. You saw those videos from Iran, from China in the initial days in Wuhan. You saw these people collapsing on the street. Those are not because they couldn't breathe. Those are because they had sudden heart attack. Uh, for older people, some of them had uh, people above 65. Some of them have sudden strokes because coronavirus also messes up people's clotting mechanism. Um, so, but for younger people, like it's like the, one of the keys. You really need to rest. Of every single survivor case I read uh, from Wuhan, from Beijing, they just sleep for like two or three weeks. Sleep and eat. Keep your nutrition uh, well balanced. Take a lot of protein. Make sure you have a lot of um, enough amino acid intake for your body to make antibodies, basically. Um, and those people survived. But there's people who are not careful because COVID-19 is weird. It has this two different phase. The first phase is in the first week, right? Uh, you start to have a cough, you start to have fever. The fever is not particularly high. Some people have high fever, but not everybody. A lot of people, I would say more than 50% only have a low grade fever, less than hundred degrees for many people. Um, and then these fever will go away in a week. So if we take the experience from the flu, you would think, okay, the fever is gone then I'm fine, I'm recovering. But COVID-19 is different. When your fever is gone, depending on your genetic makeup, depending on your body's reaction to the virus, sometimes it's already triggered your immune system to overreact. And then that's what we call a cytokine storm. 
So basically, there's an inflammation in the lung, in the, in the heart. It's left unchecked. Your immune system is going into an overactive state. And the immune system starts to attack your own tissue, start to attack the lung tissue, start to attack the heart muscles. Uh, and this process itself actually impedes the antibody production because of certain cytokines actually reduce the activity of B cells, which produce the antibody. So then you have, you have the cases where people who don't have fever, but they cannot breathe. That's what you see uh, in a lot of news reports when people have respiratory failure. But also you have people who don't have a fever, but their heart muscles are very inflamed. In China, they do a blood test. There are two biomarkers you can measure uh, in your blood to see how inflamed your heart muscle is. Um, I don't think we will have that uh, much uh, medical resource here in the U.S. if we have if we had a you know Milan-style outbreak here in the U.S. And then without knowing these information, it just has to, it's very difficult to to handle it if people don't understand the potential dangers of uh, of COVID-19. And then you will you know occasionally see people who are very young, but they just uh, you know all of a sudden drop dead on the street because of uh, COVID-19. So based on what you're saying about transmission, the like one infected person that was far enough alone along in terms of viral loading could wreak havoc in any public space, right? Like if they're like one person in one server in a restaurant could infect a huge number of people. Right, like the, you see the number coming out of uh, Massachusetts today, right? That's one biogen conference. 70 people there, like 66 is positive now. That's just one speaker or one attend attendee went into that conference and mingled with those people for a day and then the, pretty much everybody is infected now. Yeah, yeah, that is insane. Um, and that's, how, that's yeah. how hospital failed in China too. Like it's just a couple of patients in the entire hospital is paralyzed because doctors from all different kinds of departments started to catch it. So do you have an estimate of the likely number of cases in the U.S. right now? Is it like 30,000, 40,000? Right now it's about 20,000 for, 20, for, for the last weekend. And the doubling rate is pretty worrying. It's between five to seven days, okay? So if we take that and if we have this unimpeded uh, traffic, uh, air traffic and road traffic between cities and uh, schools continues and sports event continues, everything just uh, goes on as is. Then with this five to seven day doubling rate for the entire country, uh, by mid-June, you will have 10% of the population of the entire United States infected. Well, talk to me about June, okay? As of a, a few weeks ago, people were unsure about the slowing of the virus with warmer temperatures, summer-like. Summer what evidence has come out there? So my current understanding, given the data I've seen, I think uh, going into summer, June, July, August, maybe the, the speed of spread will be cut down by like 30, 40%, which is not enough at all to stop the spread of this virus. So we're talking you, about- you're gathering that evidence from places where, that are currently hot that have case counts like uh, Singapore or something? Singapore from, uh, yeah, mostly from Singapore, from Hong Kong. And if you look at how uh, clusters appears there, 
you look at uh, Indonesia when they're not testing, but they are exporting cases to Singapore. They're exporting cases to neighboring countries. Uh, clearly, it's, it's unchecked uh, spread over there. So, so with the with the flu that is disappearing in the summer, you have um, R not is the term that you use, right? For the the that's right. For that one infected person infects. So right. flu, it must be fairly high during the season, like close to two, and then and then in the summer it must drop to just above zero, right? Drop to about below one. And below. if it as long as it's below one, you are the spread will gradually die off. And and so your estimate for coronavirus is that in the summer it is where? It's probably going to still be three and four, given what, what we're doing right now in, in, in the U.S. People not wearing masks, people not uh, be careful with uh, going to dinner parties. People still pretty much live their life as before. Yeah, it is, I mean, it is tough to change your behavior. I can say on a personal level, it, I, find it, uh, I find it difficult to make dramatic changes to behavior. We'll, we'll get to individual behavior modifications later. I still have some questions about um, the coronavirus itself. So, so uh, once a person has had it, what evidence do we have in terms of personal immunity? You, you built up antibodies, now you're exposed to it again. What is, what is your risk situation? Um, we don't have a lot of data for now for that right now because the oldest, the earliest patients by now only have like seven to eight weeks, right, since their recovery, uh, since uh, early January, and we only have a few people like that in in China. Uh, most of the patients only have two or three weeks, uh, at most four weeks of recovery since the, their discharge uh, from the hospital. So. From these people, it looks like the, the antibody can protect them pretty well. You will read some news reports saying people turning positive back again after a few weeks. Uh, my understanding or my current hypothesis is that that mostly has to do with individuals' immune response. So the coronavirus here is a little bit tricky to get rid of when your body develops the antibody, right? So it's not a a virus that's mostly being carried around by your blood cell, by your blood to different parts of your, your body. It's not like a virus that infects every part, every single organ. It's, it's more, mostly a respiratory and a digestive tract disease. It infects your lung, it infects your intestine, and that's why some people have diarrhea, pretty big diarrhea and, and, and uh, nausea. And when your body tries to get rid of virus in this kind of environment, uh, the antibody in the blood doesn't do anything to the to your to your um, bronchi to your airway. Those epithelial cells need a different kind of antibody known as IgA. So your body has to produce enough IgA to to be secreted onto these uh, mucous membranes, and those IgA will be able to then bind with the virus to neutralize them. It is not a given that everybody will be very very good at producing IgA. IgA level varies a lot from person to person. Some people just aren't able to produce IgA very efficiently. They can, do a lot, they can produce a lot of antibody in their blood. They cannot produce those antibody in their lung. And the coronavirus is a little tricky because it kind of causes the lung to have liquid inside uh, because the, because the uh, membrane that separates your, your 
uh, blood vessel and to the to the um, alveoli is sort of weakened by the coronavirus. So you have liquid buildup in the in the lung, and those are basically reservoirs for for the virus. And to neutralize all this virus, it takes time. It takes a lot of uh, um, IgA secretion to to get that done. If people are malnutrition, they don't have enough antibody production. It may take two weeks, three weeks for them to completely clear all the virus in their body. So, you know, compounding that with the sensitivity of the current testing method, which is RT-PCR, that has a um, 30 to 50 percent false negative rate. It is quite possible when people are were discharged from hospital, they just happen to have a false positive when the viral clearance is not completely uh, finished. And then when they come back later, they show up to be uh, positive again. So I'm not, uh, I'm not very worried about reinfection at all. I'm mostly worried about the first two weeks after symptom, uh, first three weeks, let me say, of, of uh, contracting coronavirus and people not being careful with themselves and exert themselves and, and uh, having you know, unnecessary huge complications to their health. So I take it there's, there's no chance that you would contract the coronavirus and quietly beat it such that you didn't know you had it, like develop antibodies and beat it so that you didn't even really know you had it. Kids do like that. Like teenagers, people below like 25, mo a lot of them have no outward symptom at all. No fever, no coughing. Uh, well, unless they have allergy and some other reasons to cough. Their right? immune system just efficiently defeats it. Yeah, their antibody generation speed and then capacity is so huge, they quickly, they quickly suppress the virus. Uh, so this was known from the very beginning. The, very, the second paper ever published about COVID-19, there was a kid, I think he was a nine-year-old boy, uh, from a case in Shenzhen. There was a paper by a group in Hong Kong and uh, they, they, so at the parents' insistence, the doctor did a CT scan of the boy's line and did see pneumonia. So if you're on a CT scan, you can see there's pneumonia. You can see the lung has those uh, shadows and patchy uh, shadows in there. And there's clearly infection and the boy tested positive later on. However, there was just no outward sim symptom. The, the boy was uh, having a normal body temperature, no coughing, everything just looks fine. So, yeah, so, the, so depending on how, and I think, first of all, the underlying reason for this is uh, our immune system, the, how quickly your T cell matures, how quickly your B cell can produce the antibody um, require a lot of different moving parts. And one big part is your um, thymus, which is a little gland near your chest, right? That thymus is uh, most active for, teen, for adolescent and for, for uh, kids. Uh, it starts to gradually atrophy and turn into basically a blob of fat uh, when you're getting really, really old. But throughout your 20s, 30s, 40s, it just gradually lose its, its activity. Uh, so it takes longer for your T cell to mature. It takes longer for your antibody to, to like, the antibody response is not as vigorous when you're, as when you're younger. So, um, so there's a large reservoir, I would say, of hard to detect or undetectable kids who are pretty good at spreading this um, without knowing. It's not their fault. It's just that their body reacts this, in this way. And then I think it's 
making this disease extremely hard to control and to contain because the kids have to go to school, right? <laughs> and they have to like, exchange viruses with each other if one of them gets sick and then they bring this back to their home. Now, the case for optimism at the moment is that in Asia, there are some situations where you have declining case counts in some defined geographies. That's right. So what is the, um, how was that accomplished? Um, and what is the level of confidence that the transmission has been quieted there? Uh, well, mostly we're looking at uh, China, Singapore, South Korea, and Taiwan. Taiwan is actually quite amazing. They, I don't think they have any de death cases yet, uh, like Singapore. Uh, and uh, they have controlled the outbreak from the very beginning. For all of these countries, pretty much they, what they did is very early intervention in terms of uh, tracking down, contact trace, tracing all the cases they tested probably 20 times more people than actual carriers of COVID-19. They locked down their traffic. They protected their doctors. They protected their medical supplies, the protection gears for the doctors and nurses in the ER. They uh, canceled events. They, they, they did all these uh, interventions that, uh, that uh, I think are pretty hard to pull out in in US, in Canada, and in, in Europe at this point. So in, in Europe, you had the spread in Northern Italy, which really got the, the market's attention. I, I actually don't want to chat about markets because the, your, your knowledge in this area is so valued, but I, I will say just briefly that we've had some tremendous failures of market efficiency lately, especially the massive rally post-September, but one of the biggest failures I've ever seen in terms of market rationality was the, the delayed, late, severe reaction to coronavirus. How it wasn't reacting earlier to this strong exponential with negative effects was very, yeah. very, very strange. Well, it's actually, uh, I have a very simple explanation for that. If you compare uh, S&P 500 or NASDAQ 100 with Dixie, which is US dollars, right? You can see that ever since January 20th, when the outbreak in China started, they pretty much went hand in hand. What's happening there was initially, uh, because the US has been under testing among all the G7 countries, the US case count is extremely low in comparison to Europe and in comparison to Japan throughout February. So US is perceived, was perceived as a safe haven tons of money just flow in from Europe, from Japan, because they thought, okay, their country will be impacted very badly by COVID-19, but somehow US seems to be extremely safe and then nobody will be affected here. So as the case count here was basically uh, put to an artificial low level because of lack of testing and because of the CDC testing criteria being overly strict, money just flow in from Europe, from Japan into US market. So that then you have this rally of both equity and bond in February, during which time actually Fed is, has not been releasing any liquidity. Treasury was not releasing any liquidity. I was dumbfounded by how far 
the stock market rally has gone way above, hundreds of points above the what the fair value, if you use the uh, the the bank reserve levels released by the Federal Reserve, okay? And then Italy happened, Iran happened, and then people started to realize, okay, US probably is not that safe. It's just because they're not testing. And then the market crash goes hand in hand with the dollar crash, because why? Because the money from Europe and money from Japan, a lot of them are not hedged. When these money flow out of US stock market, they need to be exchanged back into their local currency. And especially when the U.S. market, this equity has been falling 5% if the U.S. dollar falls another 2%, for, their, for them, the loss will be 7%, right? Compounding the two together. So the, the falling dollar is not only an indication for this, uh, this money flow, but also it triggered more money to flow out of the U.S. market and then causing is just accelerating the, the sell-off. And pretty much the sell-off stops when the market, when, when dollars stop sliding. So I think that was the dynamic, the dynamics between how, how the case count of COVID-19 uh, actually drove the stock market in the, in the past uh, six or eight weeks. Right. And, and, and that story you're telling suggests that um, the expectation structure maybe is not so sophisticated and it, it might just be a function of, money continuing to flow out as the as the case count expands as we might suspect like with with 20,000 doubling every 5 to 7 days I, I don't know if the market has that in its current uh, expectation structure i don't think the market has considered that at all because uh, most people are still pretty happy right now just to buy the dip and then uh, there's so many people still trolling me every day thinking me as a, a fear monger uh, I think I'm providing a low ball estimate. I tried not to create panic. I just want people to know what, how to handle a bad situation, but. So in terms of personal uh, pr preparations, you've got, um, obviously the burden is on every individual to first of all, take care of themselves, but then also not be a transmission vehicle, especially to the the older people around you. Um, so in, in taking on that burden, you have, it sounds like social isolation is what you recommend uh, above the, above the comfortable level, like on the margin, don't go out for dinner. And uh, obviously you favor, don't be on airplanes, don't travel around. Right. Um, would you go to extremes? Like, would you say, don't go to the grocery every week? Like, what, what, what is, your, what is your, uh, your personal comfort level? Well, definitely go to your groceries. Uh, just be careful when you go to a grocery store. I wear those single-use gloves when mm -hmm. I go to a grocery store, go into a grocery store, right? So that I don't have to touch the cart and I can easily throw that glove away. Uh, when I can't get out, so I don't have to wash my hands, and just little things. Uh, of, of masks. Masks are very helpful in terms of preventing you to, your hands to touch your face. I touch my face maybe thirty times an hour. Uh, it just can't can't help it. With a mask, there will be a barrier between my hand and my face. Uh, gloves helps that too. When you wear a pair of gloves on your hand, you'll be reminded when you move your hand here, you will realize, okay, I have gloves on it. It is not 
when I scratch my nose or somewhere, it's weird, right? So it's just any little barrier there helps you to like reducing the frequency of uh, touching your face, cut down the probability of catching this disease. I would say um, doing things like using a UV light to sanitize your, your, your grocery, your mail may be helpful in a couple of months, maybe in four weeks to five weeks when the spread is more prevalent. Like if, if we have 10% of people population infected with COVID-19, I definitely will use UV light to, to disinfect all my nails before I touch it. Right. Yeah, it's, it's sensible because, okay, what's known about transmission now is that airborne transmission droplets, it is, yeah. but it's limited. Is that it, it, you have to be in quite close quarters? That's right. But just, just by having a conversation, right? When we talk, there's a little bit of droplets just coming out. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to prevent it. And then uh, I can tell you a story how China did this. Uh, I have some elderly relatives living in China. When they see a doctor in the past four weeks, the doctor asked them to remain a distance of five meters, like literally stand at the other side of the room. <laughs> and then you are only allowed to like talk when the doctor asks you a question, like don't even talk because they're so concerned about the transmission through the, through the droplets, just through talking. Yeah. This is this is for the routine visit they need to get for their you know cholesterol or or uh, diet like blood sugar meds. This is not for some acute disease, and then doctors just don't want to talk to them. If you just come here for a cholesterol med, like you don't need to talk. You come here for a cholesterol med, you 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 you, you sh they prefer you to write it on a piece of paper and give it to them, and it would they'll say nothing. You write you the script and you go away. Yeah. Now That's on surfaces the the virus is lasting a long time, right? Or, or what is... Like, depends. It depends on the humidity, temperature. It varies from like 30 minutes, nine days, depending on the temperature, what kind of surface it is. Do, is, do you have sunlight exposure? It's complicated. So, mm -hmm. but, but, but that's a major way to transmit it, like in, a, in workplace, door handles to a bathroom, even the, even the uh, faucet in the bathroom could have a lot of a, uh, viruses on it because of uh, how people use it, how many people have touched it. So these are all, are all the uh, like bathrooms on the airplane, the horrible, horrible places for that handle, that door handle is definitely a, 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 a virus magnet. Um, so yeah, so surfaces is a big concern and it's, it's pretty hard to avoid it. Uh, I think the best way is to to cut back your uh, outings, your restaurant visits, your like, don't go to movie theaters, don't, don't go to, don't go out. <laughs> if, wait for a few weeks and see how bad the situation is. And then it's, then if it, if it's, if it doesn't transmit here, if uh, we were like, if I was really uh, overestimating everything, then, then feel free to go out. I, I, I don't, think it's worthwhile to take the risk right now. There is a third element here though, uh, the fecal oral th route, because this uh, virus does infect the intestine and there have been clinical papers showing newborns and babies, they have a high viral load in their, in their, uh, in their poop. So like changing diapers, 
um, or like a cook who was not very careful in, in the hygiene, but if he's sick uh, in the acute phase of COVID-19, could transmit. I have some anecdotal cases in China where people got it from eating takeouts from uh, certain restaurants. Um, not a lot of cases, but still that's a route that could happen. So if you want to cut down the risk, just like, be careful with that. And then grandparents should probably should stay away from the grandkids for a couple of weeks because, you know, changing diapers, uh, if, the, if the infant were infected, then could be pretty bad for the grandparents. Yeah. Now, uh, part of the Singapore situation, I, I really don't know any of the particulars there, but you could imagine that they were uh, paragons of efficiency when it came to treatment. And so the, the, the worry in the U.S. is that the, the case count increases faster than our ability to process basically that's exactly right and and so that's uh, according to what i'm gathering the biggest challenge at the moment it's not going to be treated properly if you catch it in the next couple weeks because so many people are going to be catching it at the same time right and that would be way beyond 10 to 10 to 50 times beyond the capacity of what hospital can handle it and part of it also has to do with how uh, U.S. doctors, on the average, has have been pretty dismissive about this threat of coronavirus. Like I have relatives who are primary care physicians, extremely dismissive of this. Um, not wearing masks even today, uh, dismissing COVID-19 just like a flu because they haven't caught flu this season without a mask, and they're pretty confident COVID-19 would not do anything to them. So you already have examples in Japan, right? There's one physician who had like COVID-19 and, 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 and caused like 70 people to, to be um, quarantined. I think like nine or 10 of them were infected. You have this doctor in Victoria, British Columbia this week who had COVID-19 and, and went down and go to work and infected many, many other patients. Uh, we haven't seen those data yet because this is a relatively recent case. I'm just concerned that this kind of situation will happen a lot in the US because doctors are way too relaxed about COVID-19. And I'm the, I don't blame them. It's, CDC has been telling them the, the threat has been very low until pretty much a week ago. And then nobody seems to be particularly concerned about, about COVID-19. So, so you have doctors who are not wearing protection getting infected by patients. And then they turn around, they keep working with, this, with the infection in their own body and spread it to other patients. And that's kind of the hospital cluster I worry the most uh, at this point. Maybe, I think a situation will change in maybe a week or two but right now that's the biggest risk. And also speaking of US system, as far as I know, many hospitals like Kaiser Permanente in Northern California, they're self-insured, meaning they take care of their own doctors. They don't have insurance plans cover their doctor being treated in other hospitals. I don't know how the arrangement is made, but imagine if they have a Wuhan-like situation. If you have, you know, 20, 30% of uh, your, your doctors and nurses are sick and they fill up your own ICU, who are they gonna 
they're gonna run, when they run out of bed, where are their doctors gonna go? What hospital can their doctor go? Sick doctors, if they're not careful, right? So these are the situations that it's uh, sort of different from uh, Asia, different from China, different from Singapore. But uh, it seems like a lot of uh, you know, risk managers of the healthcare system are not considering this, which is making me extremely concerned. And, and Trump at this point is, is committed to laying low in, in his actions and his dialogue. So I, I don't think that is going to change at a certain point. In China, it's fair to say that, the, that they were acting aggressively, but they were also probably underreporting a good bit. And then uh, she, at some point, made public announcements that it was a serious threat. So there, there was a change in tone. The actions were always aggressive. The numbers were underreported. In the US, the numbers are underreported because, because they're not testing. Right. And um, Trump has basically doubled down and committed uh, to a strategy of downplaying and that's, right. that's just where we are. That's right. I think uh, in China, before January 18th, they were doing what we're doing right now. Between January 18th through early, through like last week, uh, the numbers they're reporting are pretty accurate. I believe it's uh, close to their technical capability. The reason for that is the incentive, the financial incentive was set in such a way that provinces, province, uh, and hospitals need to be get need to get reimbursement from the central government for their COVID-19 treatment and diagnostics, right? So how much reimbursement they're gonna get, how much resource they're gonna get depends on how many cases they report. There's no incentive for them to underreport at that point. And there was an understanding that the 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 cost coverage from the central government will be cut from 100% to 50% in the next couple of weeks. So there's a lot of incentive for them to be really diligent and get all the cases out now to get the money. Um, and also they saw what happened to the Hubei, uh, you know, party chief, their Wuhan mayor, the party chief there, they all got sacked. They lost their job, I think on February 3rd or something, basically two, within two weeks of that outbreak. Um, that's a good example for other provinces, other province, other, cities like you don't hide the numbers now it, people need to if you're flying blind you're definitely going to crash your airplane right so th that was the incentive for them to report uh, the numbers i think to their techn technical ability uh, the testing ability in the past weeks i do see a lot of uh, slacking in local governments and there are you know borderline cases sort of they call it asymptomatic cases that are just locally, you know the statistics is not reported to a central government and it's not reported to, to in, the, the, in the case numbers. But Italy and France are doing that too for different re technical reasons. I think they are running out of uh, um, hospital beds and, uh, and testing capabilities. Uh, the problem here in the US right now is where, as you said, in the action, in the actual mitigations, uh, public health actions, th they were buying the same 
talk point, talking points from the from the propaganda part of the government. They be, they really truly believe that this outbreak is is not going to be a big issue, and they're not putting all the efforts they have, for example, uh, to reduce air traffic, to protect the hospitals, to get the to inform the doctor the possible treatment plans. Like so many primary care physicians are still unprepared. That's just just uh, amazing. I do understand the need for a little propaganda to like make people look at the positive side because for example in February, early February, like in China it was so depressive to just hear people dying, hundreds of people dying every single day. Like literally when your ICU units have only 20% survival rate, you literally see like parents, like people of our age, their 40s, the parents going get checked into the hospital because uh, this is a contagious disease, you're not allowed to visit them, and they go very quickly from regular bed hospital to ward to the ICU ward. You still cannot visit them, and then they just die, and then were sent to cremation because this is like infectious disease, very contagious, and they're not allowed. They don't allow you to do a funeral. Like nobody would be able to say goodbye, visit the body, and all that. And it's just so depressing to have that. Like hundreds of people dying every single day. Doctors are dying. So it's probably necessary at that point to say, okay, focus on the positive, 80% people are recovering, it's not like that bad, just to prevent everybody to go completely depressed. Um, but I don't think we're at that stage yet. So I don't, I don't really understand uh, besides, you know, our government want to make the stock market looks really good. And then if you don't have a lot of cases, then like at least, in February, the stock market respond that way. But I, frankly, at this point, I think the stock market will respond better if you put all your energy into disease control as opposed to you know information control or, or narrative control. Yeah, absolutely. And just listening to you, I, I, I'm not going to go on any uh, skateboarding trips with my son anytime in the next few weeks. I don't think it would be a good time to visit the hospital with a with a broken arm. That would. Yeah, that would be really tough timing nice. to visit the hospital for for any reason. Um, right. Random question. I I um, with regard to all the events that we throw in the U.S., it, it clearly is an events capital of the world. Like we have more large sporting events, and it's obvious that these are, these are very high risk. Um, I've heard that you have an interesting interplay there, where on the one hand, insurance generally does not cover these things for sports owners. It, it generally, it's just not part of the package. So anytime an event is canceled, there is always um, a big financial hit for the organizer. But I, I, I've been wondering about the, the legal liability situation. Have you heard anything? I would imagine it's just totally uh, uncharted territory in terms of torts like the the liability that you have for organizing a big event. Um, I'll be interested to, to see how that plays out because that might it, it might be a big legal issue in in the U.S. Yes, I totally agree. And just looking at the clusters happening in South Korea and Singapore, big events kind of seed a lot of the. Also in Boston, right? We just had this Biogen conference that infected like sixty six people. Yeah, and, and what what could you do at a at a basketball game where you had a couple people? That that's it, it is it is terrifying. Um, so I have 
I have limited time based on our based on our scheduling, so I want to hit a few, a couple of quick topics before we end. I, w- I want to hit the the in game. Um, ex- explain to me what it looks like when a, when a Gilead, a Gilead, or or a Roche, or or some startup that no one has heard of yet uh, comes up with the with the antibodies that they can inject in people, and and we start sort of solving it. What, what does it look like? And then in terms of just the, um, so that's the good scenario. And then the bad scenario is like, what does it become a permanent function of our environment where it's, it's, it's mutating and we're like, like, like a flu, but worse. What, see if we can hit those two things quickly. Right. That's a good question. So first of all, remdesivir, that's the magic pill from uh, Gillard, right? It's actually not a pill, it's an IV infusion. So in the best case scenario, if they are able to ramp up the production and supply that uh, med for 10% of the population in the US, how are we going to find out the nurses to give you IV infusion? It requires IV infusion over 30 minutes to an hour. And it's a five day to 10 day course. How many people can get that kind of treatment? I don't think we have the capacity to deliver it that way. This is cannot, it's not an injection. It has to be IV infusion. Not even talking about cost and production here. So remdesivir, okay, that's an insurance policy for the White House, okay, for the Congress. People there, powerful people get sick, they will have access to those. For you and me, I'm not very hopeful from getting remdesivir. Uh, at this point, in the next in the next six months, I would say. But in but in a a year, you could it could become a standard thing that everyone was doing. And well, if we have unimpeded transmission, and if summer doesn't really slow down it much, by November we'll all have it. We don't need to wait for a year. This is this thing is so contagious. It's going to be just everywhere. It's so going to be too late, even for vaccine. It just comes down to your your genetics and your state of health at the moment. Can you fade it or not? Right. It, uh, well, there is a med that uh, China and also France, uh, part of China has been using. Uh, chloroquine is an anti-malaria med. It's very cheap. It's uh, it's oral pill. It blocks the partially blocks the entry of coronavirus into human cells and uh, uh, believed to be. Uh, 80% blocking the shedding of virus from an infected cell. So there's some clinical data from China. They haven't published it yet. It looks pretty encouraging. And uh, But this med is very toxic. So how to use it, when to use it, how much you use it, depending on how good your heart is, what kind of other meds you're using. Um, it's doable. It just requires a lot of skill from a doctor, from a pharmacist. Uh, I'm not optimistic in the sense that if our medical system, if our healthcare system collapses, we don't have people to help help uh, an average person to to navigate through this. But that med is there, and I think surprisingly, a country like Dominican Republic or Brazil or some African country, because they have malaria, lots of people have chloroquine they might even suffer less in terms of overall uh, mortality rate when the dust settles in, in a year and a half or in two years. Um, their population is younger and they have some meds and it's, it's everywhere. People are already taking it for, for malaria. So, uh, so that's one thing. 
Um, regarding antibodies and vaccines, I'm not really optimistic on those. So a typical vaccine, you need three months of safety trial uh, and you need another six months of efficacy trial. Without those trials, a untested vaccine can be as bad as COVID-19. Vaccine itself can trigger those cytokine storms and causing respiratory failure. And you really, really have to be very careful testing it in a you know, large group, uh, hundreds of people or even thousands of people to figure out the safety of the vaccine before mass produce it and give it to the, all the, to the entire population. So that all takes time. And given how fast, how quickly COVID-19 has been doubling, I, I, I don't, like unless we do pull off a of China, you lock down people uh, and limit their mobility for six months, how, what else can you do to wait out the, 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 the disease? I think China probably is trying to do that. They keep the infection rate really, really low and then vaccinate everybody in November and December when the vaccine is available. And then they lift the lockdown. So what I'm hearing is a lot of the sort of the noise or the priority in China right now is to ramp up their uh, face mask production capability or capacity to about 300 million a day so that all the businesses, small business, large business, everybody can wear masks, can wear gloves, and then go to work. That's their stopgap measure for now before they have the vaccine. And they seem to be willing to wait out uh, the disease to do the vaccine and they're just gonna do travel restriction. We don't do travel restriction. We don't close schools here. Um, we keep the doubling rate as is, then it's really, like by the vaccines available, it's already everywhere. But but as long as you eat a lot and rest enough, th th this shouldn't be a killer for most people below 60. Now, um, viruses are trying to propagate their genes just as every other organism is. Now, when when the host doesn't have immunity, there, there's no need to mutate, right? And then later, if there's always possibilities that you get small mutations in the same way that uh, that other d diseases do after it becomes harder to spread. How did, th this would be a process that I'm naive on because of, as a non-scientist, but how, how does it work when, the, when there's slight changes of form in the, in the virus? So given the data we have uh, seen so far in the past six weeks, uh, the mutation rate is about one base pair per two transmission. So when the virus jump into the third person from the first patient, you can expect one base pair uh, mutation in the virus. Right now, because uh, we haven't uh, widely used medicine, chloroquine or remdesivir in the population, uh, there's, there is no selection pressure to select a particular type of virus. This mutation is just random. It happens in random places. It happens uh, into a random type. So it's just uh, exponential growth of all kinds of different, uh, slight different uh, COVID-19. And at this point, the mutation is not significant enough to, to be, uh, we haven't seen enough evidence to say it's going to make the disease worse or lighter. And, and all that. Uh, for other diseases like Ebola or um, 
the Spanish flu, there is a selection pressure to keep people alive. So super virulent virus, like if a virus kills the host within three days or within seven days, that virus cannot propagate very far because the host has, is already dead before, before he or she can you know, give it to others, right? So viruses do have a selection pressure to keep the host to live long enough and to propagate. At this point, COVID-19 can keep people alive for three weeks, even for people who has gone through the severe case and going to ICU and dead, that's still a three week process. That's long enough for it to infect tens of people, even hundreds of people. So I don't see any selection pressure to, to, to make uh, COVID-19 weaker in terms of uh, virulence. It's just, it just seems like it, it is what it is and it's just continue to, to, to grow. So I'll take exactly five, five more minutes for a subject that we could, I'm sure, chat about for an hour, but we'll only take five minutes. Um, the, it, it seems insane to chat about like economics and financial markets having chatted about this important topic. But um, with regard to uh, the markets, which have been a frequent subject of conversation, given the, the high volatility, it seems that we're we're at a point where uh, a, a very weak underlying reality is coming against a, a low expectations, but probably not low enough expectations. And, and at the same time, there's some unknown massive policy response that's, that's likely coming. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, what do you think the the policy response looks like? I, this is what is keeping the market guessing at the moment. And as we know, there's not so much you can do in the face of something that's affecting supply so severely. But uh, but nonetheless, uh, things will be tried. So what what do you think will be tried? Uh, I think uh, what the U.S. and Europe and Japan has been good at, as we all know, is to do rate cuts. Right? That's like they can do that in the middle of night. Uh, and they already did that. I think the rate, the the, the Fed fund rate will probably go to zero uh, by the next uh, FOMC meeting, which is next Wednesday. Uh, if not, then it will go to zero in April. It's going to go to zero very quickly. I think the current uh, uh, QE or POMO, the T-bill buying program, will continue, $60 billion a month. Uh, and they may transition into buying... Uh, two-year or three-year T-notes because uh, we're running out of T-bills. Um, so monetary side is pretty easy to predict because that's they always do. Uh, fiscal side, um, there's something I hope is going to happen, which is putting money into disease prevention right now, showing up the hospitals, showing up the, uh, you know, the Logistics, we can't afford to have the freight service between um, food producing states and food consuming states. We cannot afford to have that broken, right? But uh, freight service, the, the truck drivers will get sick and we need to protect those people. Grocery stores, like people need to be able to get food. That's what I would focus on, but I don't think it's going to, that's the, that's the, that's the uh, priority of our current government. What I think will happen, given what they have behaved so far, is uh, since Trump has a lot of hotels, I think the hotels, airlines will be bailed out very soon, just because he has a lot of hotels. 
Uh, cruise lines maybe, but cruise lines is really uh, it's sort of a, not an essential business uh, in general. Banks will be, be, big banks will be bailed out. Small banks are being killed by the flat yield curve. Or if, we, if the yield goes negative, it's going to be very, very devastating for small banks. Uh, don't think there will be anything, anything done to that. Uh, the payroll tax deduction or reduction they talked about, I think it's not going to be helpful because it's going to be spread out over six or seven months. And it's going to mostly impact people with, you know, upper middle class with higher income who make a lot of money. If some guy who's driving Uber is not, is making only 30K a year, like payroll tax deduction is not going to give that person a lot of more free cash to stay at home for four weeks to get a complete rest from COVID-19, right? So I do expect a huge demand uh, crash or, or, or a loss of demand, demand shock in the US because of the fiscal response will focus on the industries as a, you know, close to the power, not necessarily close to the people who spend the money. Let's just say if even cold heartedly, you say where your, where, where's your consumers, where's your customers? Who can keep the cash flow going for all the big businesses? Then I don't think the government is. I don't think the, the 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 current government is focusing on that at all. They're focusing on you know travel. They're focusing on on cruise lines, banks. Yeah. Now the 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 history um, over the past twelve years has been that monetary policy has been much more aggressive than fiscal policy, in part because you don't have as much of a process there. It's fewer individuals that, that control things. And, and so, so I, would, I would argue that we're probably uh, quite close to some dramatic actions like buying corporate bonds in the US. And, um, yeah, at this moment they can buy uh, commercial papers, which is very short-term corporate bonds, like six months. Mm -hmm. uh, they are not authorized to buy uh, longer term, like a year or two year maturity corporate bonds, they need Congress authorization to do that. Uh, there's some alphabet facility from the treasury can be utilized as a bridge to do that. But well, when I say buy, they, they could, they do, I, I would think have the, um, the ability to have a, have a lending facility, which would, which would effectively operate as the same way of, of buying. Is that, is that true? Um, that part, even that part is pretty difficult. They, they can, they can holding that lending facility for six months, commercial paper. Corporate, corporate bonds to, to cash in, a, in an exchange that that's not possible? It's basically using corporate bond as collateral to, to borrow cash from Fed at this point is not, is, Legally, it's not possible. Congress has to authorize it. This is this is a block. This is changed by the uh, Dodd Frank. It was possible in two thousand eight. Not possible now. And and theoretically, and I wouldn't think that this will happen even under the most dramatic circumstances. But theoretically, the the Treasury can buy stocks. It's never been done, but theoretically, that's possible. Correct. Um. They have limited of ammo to do that. They cannot right. spend their entire TGA to do that. Right, but, theori but theoretically, 
it's it that is possible. It's a it's a gray area. I mean, Congress can give them a very hard time. Can sue the Treasury Secretary. It's 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 very it's to, in two thousand eight they can do that. Right now it's very right. difficult. Uh, and also, I don't think that solved the problem. I don't think this is a liquidity crisis. I think the problem is let's let's just take S and P five hundred company. Let's say if G let's say if Amazon loses five percent of its workforce from COVID nineteen, that's not going to be solved by you know, giving more loans to Amazon. If Amazon loses, you know, 6% of its customer, that's not gonna be solved by giving more loans. That's loans is for liquidity crisis. This is solvency crisis. The cash flow can be permanently impacted if we don't deal with this infectious disease. So, so I think that from a cash flow perspective, yeah, we should definitely have, you know, two, three months of bridge loans to help those companies to not uh, uh, default just because of uh, this uh, sudden event. That's totally very reasonable and we should definitely do that. Um, but uh, right now it seems like that's the only response we're getting from the government. Like the only uh, aggressive response is on the monetary side. <laughs> And it's like stimulating and then causing more asset price inflation. Oh, by the way, one thing I never, I don't tweet a lot on Twitter uh, that is happening in China right now is there's not only asset price inflation, there's a lot of consumer product inflation. Uh, the cost of buying food, I think went up by like 20 to 25% because everybody has to order it online and it has to be delivered and it will be delivered fee. There's all kinds of fee added into it. So there will be a lot of food inflation. There will be a lot of extra costs for people just to eat. And, uh, and so inflation can, can go up quite a bit uh, in the next, uh, next couple of months. Yeah, and that's so, just, if, if demand stays somewhat constant and supply curves Shift to shift to the left, uh, as as they're no doubt doing right now. Uh, you get prices going up, and that's that's sort of what the stagflation environment looks like. Like in the '70s, when we had the oil price shocks, you had demand demand curves relatively unchanged, and supply curves shifting quite a lot. And as a result, you had declining quantities and declining prices, which are the, the worst of all worlds. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Declining uh, quantities and increasing prices. Exactly. So, so the point that I try to make is the political capital for doing unconstrained monetary stimulus will be very little in six months to nine months. Because once the inflation picks up, once the, uh, once the people start to not having income, but then the cost of living goes up because of uh, because of the, the uh, lockdowns and all that, to justify doing more QE as the only solution or the main solution will be hard. Yeah, for sure. So um, I don't know if we can do this forever or just like- Yeah, but the reason that it will be tried is because it's clear that we've organized our politics in such a way where these are primary these are primary concerns. They shouldn't be primary concerns, but the state of the markets uh, are uh, primary concerns. Um, and then also there, there is so much 
that that can't break or that is perceived to to be uh, unbreakable, like boomer retirement accounts, uh, pension funds, insurance reserves. Like there, there are things that break when asset prices go down, and and the perception in terms of public policy, people at the Fed and and people in government is that these things can't break. So they'll try to do everything to prevent them from breaking. Right. Um, so that's why I believe the policy response will be will be dramatic, even if the the typical uh, uh, person would not support it and should not support it. I completely agree. And it will backfire, but they would do it anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, thanks so much. I, I, I love this time as always, and I'm deeply appreciative. Well, it's always fun to chat to chat with you. Uh, this is a, this is a, hopefully I hope many people will benefit from this. Excellent. I'll, I will see you soon. See ya. Bye. Bye.